Over the radio, the SEALs reported Bin Laden was dead. The news of Bin Laden's death brought celebrations to the streets of the United States. But it also haunted the world with memories of a clear September morning a decade before, when the streets of America were choked by terror. That mystique and that legacy goes way, way back to even Vietnam and before. You know, the enemy knew the men in green faces, or if they were coming for you, you weren't coming back. Since World War II, SEALs and their forefathers have faced whatever threat the enemies of each generation have posed. From Hitler's beaches to Bin Laden's terror. While the perils have changed and will continue to, the invisible men behind the face masks still claim a common heritage and future. No matter how sophisticated they or their foes become, they are simply frogmen. Welcome to the Global Recon Podcast. I'm your host, John Hendricks. On with me on this episode is Chantel Taylor. Uh, you probably heard Chantel the last couple of episodes. She's been co-hosting and um, it was an interesting episode. I had a conversation with a retired U.S. Navy SEAL by the name of Dave Maynard, and Dave is an interesting guy. He made it into the SEAL teams uh, in 1972, and he just missed Vietnam. He'd done some work for the government and for the Navy uh, over the years, and then when the global war on terror really kind of started to kick off, he joined the um, the CIA uh, global response staff, and uh, and and that was kind of made famous, and they received a, a level of no- notoriety from the movie Thirteen Hours in Benghazi because the guys who were defending the compound were GRS guys. So, um, so Dave has a lot of experience, uh, interesting perspective on things, and what's interesting, Chantel, is that he. As a contractor, as a GRS contractor, he worked in southern Iraq and Basra a lot, and he said that he worked with the British military. And um, we were talking about how the rules of engagement kind of uh, make it hard for guys to fight. And, and then I had mentioned that the uh, I think the Brits had it worse. And then he kind of just went off and kind of talk, talked about some stories that he had about his time serving with the British um, and I know you were you were in Basra as well, right? Yeah, yeah, I was. I mean, God, his um, his CV or resume reads quite well, doesn't it? What, yeah. Shall I just introduce myself? I'm, I'm the combat medic. <laughs> no. <laughs> yeah, no, he, and he, he's right. You know, to go off about um, rules of engagement being kind of, um, I think it's it's got to a point where you know you have to really th- you have to really interpret them and and kind of and this is re- a really sad state of affairs. But if if you can kind of get your head around, um, you know, re, and, and read between the lines, and basically you you have to be sure in your head, and it's almost if if you're sure in your head, you can you can practically, you know, do anything so, so long as you've you're you know under the sort of correct threat. But I think the problem being is that I've done the sort of pre-deployment training sometimes where it's it's all very slow and it doesn't happen like that on the ground. You know, it's all very 
you know, the, the, the old warning shots. And there's a time and a place for all of these things. But in war fighting, there's, there's no time or place. You know, there's no, you shouldn't be having, if you're, if you're firing warning shots, you're firing shots. We got to a point where we were so set in this, our ways. I mean, we had to carry the rules of engagement card in our pocket. And I thought, well, you know, uh, you know, what point am I going to sit there and think, oh, I'll tell you what I'm going to do. I'm going to have the time and just get that little card out and just have another little read. It's like, come on. Right. It's, it's a sort of split second decisions. And, and sometimes, see, this is my point about having your stuff straight in your head. Sometimes you're going to get it wrong. But if in your head at that point, you you thought what you were doing was going to stop either A, yourself being harmed, someone next to you being harmed, or potentially um, you know more than one or two people, then, then you're well within your rights, whether you're right or wrong. You know what I mean? So you should, I think if the training's done prior to the deployment, then you should, you should have the backing of your chain of command to be able to say, you know what, I, I thought I was doing the right thing. And it's not, it's right. not always, always going to happen that way in the fog of war, I'm afraid. And that's something, again, that's um, it's a very nice position to be looking down from an ivory tower judging these things. But when you're actually in the heat, the, the thick of some of the shit that's going on, it doesn't work like that. And then, which leads me on to, we, would, we discussed that actually before we came on air, um, this was an interesting time for medics because it was 2003. I'd already deployed to Kosovo, Sierra Leone. I was, I almost deployed to the Congo, but that's another. We use that for another podcast. And then, uh, yeah. so then I was handed five rounds of ammunition to cross the line of departure into a war. And I remember thinking, yeah, you know, this is weird. I mean, it, is, it, was, it was some kind. It was like at the time, I thought, well, yeah, I'm just a medic, and and, it's, and it kind of felt. And this is going to sound crazy. Although I felt a bit weird about it, it wasn't like the end of the world. I wasn't thinking, oh, you know, I just thought, right, okay, well, I'll just wait. And at the appropriate time, I'll get hold of some more rounds. Because at that time, I didn't, I just thought I'd be there, you know, people would be bringing bodies back to me. And then fast forward, what, five years, and it took me seven rounds to take a Taliban fighter down. So obviously, looking back, it was like, wow, maybe I should have been a little bit more concerned. But it just shows you how far we've come. You know, that at the start, it was almost like I, I, I did very, very much feel like I'm just like the, just a medic. And then all of a sudden, no, not really. You know, every 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 set of boots on the ground counts. You know, if you're if you're somewhere. The, the days of definitive front lines are, are well and truly over, I think. So, um, yeah. And he would be right to to go off about the rules of engagement, I think, on all on all levels at the minute. They, they certainly need to be looked at. Right. Because, you know, he. He he had just missed Vietnam, but a lot of the senior guys on his teams, the instructors uh, for the SEAL selection buds, yeah, uh, they were all Vietnam veterans. So he heard the stories, and, yeah. and um, he was able to kind of soak all that up. And from Vietnam, in comparison to now, I mean, they were fighting pretty much unrestricted. And and what a lot of people would say is the way you need to fight a war in order to to fight properly. I know, and and you know, and with all like with all the goodwill in the world, and you know what, I, I'm not, I don't cut around like some sort of you know the old operators fucking thinking yeah kill everything, but the the thing is is that the reality is is you do have to fight like with like, and it is 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 such a you you could call it a blessing to have the sort of moral the moral fiber that we have or the the morals that we sort of live our lives by, but unfortunately not everyone lives like that so you do have to kind of say you know what if you if you if you don't fight 
as ferocious or more ferociously than your enemy, you're going to lose. And uh, you know, it's this. It's not. It's not ideal, but it's that's a fact, isn't it? That's the way of the world. I mean, no one ever sort of fucked with Genghis Khan. And it's not to say right. that you need to then start putting heads on stakes. And but he did succeed, and it just puts into perspective that you know you, you just can't sort of reason with some people. Right, and 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 that's just the, the bottom line. Yeah. You know? The thing is, is the the rules of engagement really work for the enemy versus working for, you know, the troops on our side, British, you know, American, Australian, whoever, you know, yeah. French. Um, Especially when they, they know them. They you know, work I've, against them. And right, I've but seen, that's the um, thing. They, they, yeah, without they doubt. use it to their advantage, right? Yeah, and even like, um, and we had some horror stories. And he, like, I know like one story which was particularly heartbreaking was yeah, three young paratroopers. And a, a young kid was approaching them. This was on my um, my final tour in 2008 as a as military. Um, and he was a, approached them, just a little kid, and you know, a wheelbarrow, and they kind of were looking, you know, looking on uh, as as we kind of do. And then the, and the kid blew himself up. Now, clearly, the kid didn't send himself with a a wheelbarrow full of explosives. So it just shows you that they know they know how to manipulate. Um, our societies against us, and and I, I I would never want our societies to be any different. I don't want us to see life as cheap. I don't want us to feel that that's um, appropriate behaviour. But what I also don't want us to do is become victims of that. You know, so in some ways, is like when when our guys um, or, or women go to war, then that's that's a a big lesson that we need to be taught. You know, you need to understand. And I've always said this actually. I'd, is you need we need to in order to to beat your enemy you need to understand them and you need to understand how they work. Now, ours is well documented that we're kind of we play fair because that's we signed up to the Geneva Convention. Everywhere that we've been since that Geneva Convention's been signed up to, no one else that we fought has actually signed up to the Geneva Convention. So, right, it's a it's a lovely thing to have, isn't it? It's a lovely thing to say and and, and gives everyone a warm fuzzy feeling that we're all doing the right thing, but. The problem is, is that's probably been killing our our, our troops. You know, the fact that yeah. we've we've actually had to to sign up for that, and and then, but you still expect men to fix bayonets, you know? So I, I just some sometimes I don't understand at what point are men allowed to get feral? You know, what point do you say that's it then? You know, fix bayonets, it's fuck, it's game on. Right, and 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 you know, I, I'm I'm pretty sure that if the rules of engagement that are the 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 soldiers fighting the wars on our side for this GWAT era. Yeah. I, I guarantee if they were using the rules of engagement from, you know, let's say Vietnam or Korea or, you know, even the great wars, the World yeah. War and World War Two, I guarantee this fight would have been over much sooner. But yeah, for you know, sure. they like you know, if you there's examples and stories of guys have talked about like in in Iraq specifically you know, with the tier one units, um, they would go on raids and, uh, you know, they would hit houses and they would capture guys. And, you know, he wouldn't have a weapon or anything, and but they would find weapons in the house. Obviously, he had them, you know. Yeah. And they would they would continue to capture the same people over a couple of months, you know, over their, over their rotation. Yeah. And they'll just – and they know these guys are bad guys, but they – because the guys know the rules of engagement – they use it against them, and and you know it, they kind of work the system. Yeah, and uh, I'm you know I'm sure that's gotten people killed, and 
if things stay that way, I'm sure it will continue to get people killed. You know? Yeah, for sure. And, and, that, and that's the problem. In, in those sorts of places, it, it wasn't even just about people attacking um, coalition forces. You know, the, the stuff that goes on against the civilian populace, you know, the, the actual indigenous people of, of those areas is disgusting. You know, and they and again they kind of um, if you, if you can do that to your own, then you're gonna you're gonna manipulate the system to yeah, to to the the worst type of degree in order to um, co- you know cause mayhem against coalition forces. Right, right. So all right. So now um, you know, I'll play the interview that I had with Dave Maynard from the Warfighter Academy. Hey, what's going on, everybody? Um, on for this podcast is a very special guest, a gentleman by the name of Dave Maynard. And Dave is a former U.S. Navy SEAL uh, turned U.S. government contractor. And um, Dave also runs some very uh, interesting programs uh, out in the West Coast as, as what is known as the Warfighter Academy. Uh, Dave, how's it going? Good. Cannot complain. Life is very good. <laughs> nice. All right. So, Dave, you you've been involved in um, working with the U.S. government for a long time. Um, so let's start at the beginning. C- can we talk about what motivated you to to join the U.S. Navy, and then from there, you know, what, what kind of uh, if you can detail a little bit of your career throughout. Sure. Um, yeah, I, I grew up, you know, in the fifties and sixties. So I was like a, after, you know, after world war two, Korean war, um, I always felt that I would serve in the military in some capacity. So I was always, I always knew that that was what I was going to do. I just didn't know what until I got into high school and my mother actually would read me a thing out of reader's digest about these guys called Navy SEALs. And I went, oh my gosh, that's what I got to be. So um, I, the, I started researching them. And then one day my brother ran into a, two Navy SEALs that came into the gas station where he worked. And he goes, dude, those guys are so cool. <laughs> <laughs> you know, at that age, you're so impressionable, you know. And so, um, so when I went to the Navy recruiter. I talked to him about getting into the SEALs. And this, I'm probably one of the only guys in the world can say my recruiter told me exactly what to do. And he was upfront me and honest on every point. And um, he told me that you probably have a one in a hundred chance of making it. And you have to stay qualified. You can get a contract as a UDT SEAL guarantee that you will make it into Bud's training, but you have to pass all these requirements. And he laid them out for me. He told me you got to do this at boot camp. You got to do that, 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 that. And so I, I literally had my game plan. He, he laid it out for me perfectly. And I just had to stay qualified. So when I got to boot camp, um, they had the giant uh, like auditorium that they bring all the boot camp recruits in. And up comes this guy, uh, Navy SEAL, give us a brief on if you want to be a SEAL. And I'm telling you, man, he, he held that auditorium. I mean, he, there, was, there wasn't a sound to be, to be made in that place. And this is Vietnam was still going on. So, you know, it was still very... Um, you know, the SEALs were a very becoming more and more re- known, but extremely respected. And so, um, you know, I thought, I, you know, I was just in hog heaven. So I go, you know, I knew what I had to do 
I took the initial screen test. There were 15 of us that took the initial screen test. I was the only one that passed. And that's like normal. So, you know, then I got to boot camp and I got pushed, put into a special UDT sealed boot camp company, which was really cool because then I have to do the regular stupid boot camp stuff. (laughs) And uh, we actually got to go over every once a week to the SEAL team area and um, go to BUDS and actually run the op course, kind of half of it, and then run on the beach and just kind of see what it was like. And every every week we did that. And it was like the highlight of boot camp. I mean, it was nothing. You couldn't beat it. And, you know, I, I had all these legendary people running around there, um, you know, and you're just like, wow, that, that guy's this guy and that's that guy, you know. And it, you know, you're like, you're in, you're in the Disneyland of John Wayne's <laughs> right. kind of thing, you know. So, I mean, I was just totally pumped. And, and unfortunately, I was able to pass everything. I got, um, you know, I, I was able, my, my eyes were good. My hearing was good. I mean, I, you know, survived all the friggin' screen tests and, um, you know, only to get to the first week of training to find out that um, somehow my name got crossed up with another trainee that had, done a uh, had run the main gate got drunk did all kinds of crazy things and somehow they mixed up my name with his wow and uh my proctor was a guy named chief chief Astock, kenny Astock, and he walked up to me and this is the last person in the world that you want to be uh crossing with he walked up and he goes you're nothing but a dirt bag and i'm going to make sure you don't make it through this train <laughs> and i'm like oh no <laughs> i'm like what did i do i mean out of the blue, he came up to me and said that to me. It's like, that's not the good way to start. <laughs> the problem for Kenny Estock was he did not know who I was and who, who he was dealing with. And I was the number one runner. I was the, one of the top swimmers. I was the number one O-course, the number one shooter. I beat everybody at everything. And it was hard for him to go, I got to get rid of this guy. And he couldn't get rid of me. Even though I might win the run, they would put me in what they call the circus. The circus is kind of extra conditioning. If you screw up, you got to go do the circus. So it's more push-ups, pull it's more. It's just more conditioning to hopefully make you and motivate you so you run better. And here I'm winning the run, but I'm still sitting in the circus or I'm you know doing really good in the swims or whatever, like O-course, whatever. So pretty soon I, it, they, I think they figured it out when I was, when I went through hell week that I wasn't the dirt scumbag they thought I was. And all of a sudden their whole attitude changed toward me and I get that from, and in hell week I was an absolute monster. I, I had to, I just couldn't let anybody beat me in anything. I was just an absolute monster. And we had a phenomenal hell week class. Um, they had stopped hell week for two years. We were the first hell week in two years. So nobody really knew what was going on. Oh yeah. Why did they stop it? Oh, they're trying to, you know, your typical officers, idiots that come up with their own ideas that, you know, Oh, you know, while I'm the CEO of buds, we need to make sure that so many, you know, they couldn't deal with the fact that only like 20% passed the training like this. They couldn't get over the magic number. And so somebody's always, well, let's just take out hell week out. And, Uh, you know, the, the classes that went through the non hell week paid dearly for that. I think, um, so a lot of people think they got away with something. They did not. They paid dearly. Um, we got the, we got the first hell week and the problem is nobody would quit in our class. So they think hell week too easy. So 
So we just got piled on and piled on and piled on. And in those days, they didn't have um, the doctors and the total medical staff just surround you, you know. And we we got literally shredded during Hell Week, and we were we were so beat up. All of our all your knees, everything that has touch of sand, because you're in the sand all the time. You're in the boat. You're in the water. You're dry. You're cold. You're wet. You're miserable. You're living in mud. You just you live this horrible life. Well, you know your skin turns into you know open giant sores. Hmm. And, you know, we were just these bleeding creatures. We didn't even look like humans. And they finally had to just stop doing all that stuff to us. They threw us in the uh, pool for like two hours, combat school. And they just like dumped like gallons and gallons of chlorine in there. That's their way of, you know, helping <laughs> us out. Like, you know, we got, you know, so they just soaked us in chlorine and killed all the bugs, I guess. And then it just kept on going. And then those days, Hell Weeks was six days long. They've cut it back to five days. Hmm. So, you know, um, you know, so I made it through Hell Week and um, I had a phenomenal Hell Week class. We had a, just a, just awesome class. It was class 68. And then halfway through this, the next week, um, right after Hell Week, running the obstacle course, I was in the process. I wanted to break that obstacle course record. And I was well on my way to do that, and I fell off the stupid cargo net, fell 30 feet, and slaughtered, and just shattered my arm. So oh, wow. I got, yeah, I got rolled back, got sent to the hospital, rolled back. And as soon as I'm in the hospital, as soon as I got a cast on that thing, I'm starting to do one-arm push-ups in the shower. <laughs> <laughs> so nobody could see what a freaking mental effective I was. <laughs> and so I, I found out for me, if it was actually easier to do one-arm push-ups than two-arms. Because I, I had stronger shoulders than, than my chest muscles. So I was able to use more shoulder. I see, right. You and kind of like lean. Yeah, yeah. It's just, I don't know. But it worked out really good for me. So when I got out of um, the hospital, I kind of show up back at Bud's. Instructors going, hey, you're back, man. It dropped. And they go, yeah, you only have to do 10. I go, screw that. I'm doing 20. And I knocked out 20. And uh, they're going, wow. And then. Uh, I went, I'm the only Bud's trainee to actually go continue training with a broken arm. Actually, oh, wow. they put a fiberglass cast on my arm and did the runs, the swims. Couldn't do the O course, and that kind of that screwed me because I couldn't do the O course. Um, but um, I could do everything else, and I just continued training until I got got uh, you know uh, got through Bud's, got into the teams in January of, or this December of 1972. So. Um, and I got, it was a miracle that I got into SEAL Team 1, um, and like right away I was in a platoon training to go to Vietnam, and Vietnam was still going, and again I was in this platoon with these just legendary guys, me like every day was you know, Christmas Day, They're just just amazing guys, and um, uh, we did a full platoon workup to go to Vietnam, we were the next platoon to rotate to Vietnam. And when we all completely trained up, you know, CEO calls us into his office and we just figured, you know, we're going to get our freaking ticket and head on. We had our, we had our bag packed. We were ready to go. And um, he says, I just found out from the uh, president that no more SEALs are going to Vietnam. And right. uh, your platoon is disbanded. Go to schools. So I'm like, whoa. So... I went to Corman A school, became a Corman, and then uh, I was the numbers. I was only, in those days, Corman did not go through buds. 
um, they would take them out of the Marine Corps, they would take them somewhere else, um, but they would put them in a platoon and just literally throw them in a platoon. <laughs> and um, these guys wouldn't know anything, and you'd have to teach them everything. But all their job was, you know, corpsmen. And uh, some of them turned out to be phenomenal SEALs, too. Um, the, uh, but I, I know our corpsman, was, they took him off a ship. His name was Alan uh, Almack. Alan Almack. And he was, didn't know nothing. He didn't even know what web gear was. He, wouldn't even, he didn't even know how to shoot a rifle. He didn't know nothing. Yeah. But we, we trained him up, and he turned out just to be awesome. I mean, it was quite, quite remarkable. And, um, so, you know, it was, it was a great time to be in the teams. Um, I was around all these legends and, you know, like the Mike Thorntons and, the, you know, there's just so many names that you go on. They, they just, I, was, I was around all these great uh, guys that write the books now, you know, and, uh, so it was, uh, great. But, you know, with the war ending and not, you know, I realized after this, I'm, I'm going to get out of the Navy because I hated the, uh, you know, what the problem for the military when there's no war, it turns into a you know, political correct environment of officers stamping on everything to get up their career, you know, <laughs> up the career path, which I, you know, you see these officers that, you know, do anything and everything and they, they're, they're actually useless in their capacity to, um, uh, actually, um, you know, rule or whatever you want to control or command. They, they they call it command. But, you know, it's the enlisted men that make things work. And when you see those guys getting, um, you know, slammed for stupid things, you, you realize, eh, you know. Fortunately, the teams have, the officers go through buds. And so you do get a closer, much closer um, relationship between officers and men. The problem you have is, if you're a lieutenant, senior lieutenant, you no longer operate. You now are in the ticket punch career of become. Right. I got to be a training officer. I got to be an officer. So you don't have that. You're not an operator anymore. And that's really what you're joining for. And so there is a disconnection. A lot of a lot of officers. It's really hard for them to, to leave that. But you know the reality is that you're no longer an operator. You're just a you're just a you know talking you know, PowerPoint you know, pre presenting, you know, career now, you know, and someday I'll be a captain, you know? Right. So, yeah. And so, you know, it's, it's, it's sad, but um, I wish they would change that. I think that they should have an enlistment where they're enlisted for a certain amount of time, you know, at least a platoon or two or, you know, give them more time so that you, it's the problem you have, you get a guy who's early thirties, starting to come that thing called wisdom <laughs> and he's an officer. He does maybe a couple of platoons and he's still super in shape. And then you cut it. You said, that's it. You can't play his game no more. And it's like, right. Oh no, no, that's you, you, you want that guy that's in his early thirties. That's still in shape. that can now command guys in the field. You know, that's, that's right. your ideal guy. Right. So that's more experience, more, you know, yeah. more everything. Yeah. And it's sad to see that some of you guys, when they're, you, know, you see guys that are going through buds that are lieutenants already. You know, like, dude, you might do one platoon and that's it, buddy. Right. That's going to be it for you. And um, uh, it, it's sad, you know, how much money and energy they spend in pushing this guy through. He's only going to get one shot at a platoon. And um, unfortunately, you get a, uh, you know, once they get up to that 
lieutenant, lieutenant commander, and commander level, you know, they're really disassociated from their guys, you know? <laughs> right. So, and I know it was interesting is um, after Vietnam was starting to wind down, I, I know that the SEAL teams were, were uh, the budgets were cut and a, a lot of guys were kind of let go. And I think yeah. only a small number were, were kind of kept. Uh, yeah. And, and, and that, that's kept, that took place and that kept happening for a couple of years, right? Yeah, actually I was, I actually gained it from that actual, what you're describing. It was called the, uh, this famous thing called the dirty 30. The SEAL team one decided that they were 30 men over manned. And so what they did is they took all these guys and they, they shipped them off to the ships. Not more than a few months later, they went, oops, with we're 30 men undermanned. <laughs> we screwed up. And I just happened to come off out of buds right when that happened. That's why I got into the SEAL teams. I, oh, wow. Coming out of buds, it was really hard to get into SEAL team. It would be near impossible to get out of buds and go straight into a platoon going to Vietnam. So um, I, I benefited big time for that. But I'll tell you what, there's a lot of guys that really, really got screwed over on that one. So and that's what, by those wonderful officers that you got, you know. <laughs> so that's what, like, like guys, you know, going through buds, and then because of the circumstances, not being able to go and 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 make it onto a team. Well, it's just hard. You, you, you know, everybody was trying to get in a seal platoon going to Vietnam. I mean, right. it was a fight over bodies in a bar, getting over that, you know. And um, uh, you know, the, back then we had the UDTs groups and normally you would go to UD, DD, UDT first and then you would try to get into the SEAL teams from there and um, UDTs were like just hardcore dudes and they were actually doing a lot of, they were doing more diverse type operations so it was actually a good place to come out of buds, go there and then try to work your way into the SEAL teams from there. That's kind of the way it went but we were, after I think pretty much after my class and during that same time frame, they started sending SEALs coming out of BUD um, straight to the SEAL teams. And then UDT just became one. UDT and the SEALs just became one unit now. It's just, if you're, if in, in every SEAL is a UDT. Right. Um, it's actually, the Frogman is the backbone to a Navy SEAL. Because it's, there's nothing like the water work that you have to do that is comparable in the various special forces. It's one of the little secrets, you know, you can only, you can run somebody and make them throw up and, you know, make them do a million pushups and everything, but there's nothing like that cold water. Right. You get, you get in that cold water, buddy, and nothing that nothing tests you more. And you know, it's three o'clock in the morning on Wednesday night of hell week. You're tired. Your body's shot. You got open sores all over the place. When you get in the water, everything stings. It's not just cold water. Everything's stinging because it's like you're rubbing salt water in it. Right. <laughs> you know, it's like, this is nuts, you know, and all you can feel is, is you're, you know, getting smashed in the, in the surf with your boat and it, the boat gets upended. You bounce off the bottom and, you know, you smash your knee on the bottom in that open wound on your knees and you just go this is lunacy but you know <laughs> they're, they're gonna have to kill me they're gonna have to kill me to get me out of this you know and um so, so 
so pretty much during that those days, and and this is good in in terms of you know the experience and and the, the lessons that are passed on to the guys who are going through it. Yeah. So a, a lot of those instructors and and uh, guys who were around in that area, those are all guys who had been to Vietnam, right? Yeah, yeah. All of our instructors were in Vietnam, and you you'd sit there and just listen to stories all day long. You're like, wow. Some of you guys had large, you know, wounds and scars, and I mean, these guys. You know, there were certain guys during Hell Week. Uh, there was a guy named Scotty Lyons, and for some reason, I just this guy walked on water. And Scotty Lyons would step in. I don't care how much pain I was in. I don't care what I was going through. When that guy would step into an evolution, I felt no pain. I was unstoppable. And there was a couple other guys. Louis Boisbert was another one. Um, Kenny Estock, of course. I always had to watch out for him. <laughs> I knew, especially in Hell Week, I was, every time he showed up, I went, oh, no, here comes a pitchfork in my back. Man. <laughs> uh, but I, I wouldn't trade it for the world because that keeps you motivated, man. You, you, you forget worrying about whether your body's all being shredded. You're, you're more worried about disappointing these men who you respect so much. And that's, that's the biggest thing. Is my fear of be, disappointing them way outweighed what I was physically going through. Right. And I know, like in you know, in, in recent years and past ten years or so, um, the seals have kind of of today's generation have kind of reached like an unprecedented amount of popularity through movies and books and and things like that. Yeah. Um, but really, a lot of people, and obviously, I think for the most part, what what I've gained from talking to uh, guys from different soft units is uh, they seem to have like a healthy dose of respect for their kind of forefathers and the founding uh like the, the founding of, of their units you know so like seals would, yeah. would, would very much understand the history of, of the seal teams and the udt teams and uh things yeah. like that but I, I know during those days seals weren't as popular as they were today but uh they, they still got a lot of work done and i think vietnam was the first war that seals were uh entered into right yeah that's right uh kennedy put us into action in, I think, 1964. That's when the first SEAL teams were uh, put together. Um, and the, they uh, used the UDT model. And they saw that these guys are quite, quite uh, badasses, <laughs> to say the least. Yeah. And uh, they'd never wanted to get rid of that UDT frogman um, piece. That was the key. And, this, uh, and, you know, actually, UDTs were actually doing SEAL ops in Korea and in Vietnam. So they were actually doing SEAL-type operations. They just hadn't, you know, they didn't have the right gear. They didn't have the right uniforms. They had nothing, you know. Right. I mean, you, you would look at a platoon over there and you go, who, who do you guys belong to? I mean, is this Walmart or, <laughs> you know, the SWAT meet team or what's the deal here? Um, and so... Uh, We'd have different uniforms, different hats, different shoes. Everything's different. Yeah, even our guns. We'd modify our guns. But um, yeah, it was uh, I, in 1998. I had the incredible privilege of working with the History Channel on the history of the Navy SEALs. We did a oh nice. Um, it was like two, not two or three hour um, thing on the history of the Navy SEALs, and um, I actually wrote the original concept and the outline of how we would do it. And worked with the production company Brentwood Productions out of LA. Um, sat him down. And I said, "This is what this is how we need to do this. We're not going to 
we, we, we picked a narrator, which was Tom Selleck. <laughs> and that was kind of funny because the producer goes, uh, he gives me this giant long list of narrators for the, doing the history of Navy SEALs. And I went down there and I said, for all these, yeah, geez, all these cool names. Oh, wow. You know, Rick Wood and you know, Nero and all these guys. And I, Tom Selleck. And he goes, well, you know, Tom Selleck's kind of expensive, but, you know, go through the list. And go, no, I said, it's Tom Selleck. And so he's kind of bantering with me on that and um, on, you know, trying to give me, uh, you know, maybe one, two, three or four different names. Like, it's Tom Selleck. And so we go to a SEAL reunion thing and I bring him along and he, he's, out, he's out there with uh, all these guys. You know, and these are all, these are really cool guys at this, this reunion. This was in 90, mid 90s. And 90, it came out in 98, so we did this in 97. And I brought him to this, uh, and I go, just go ask those guys. Don't don't argue with me. Just go ask them. 100%. Tom Selleck. Yeah. Tom Selleck. Tom Selleck. They, I guess you better call Tom Selleck. And Selleck was cool because he, his agent said, no, it's 50000 And we're like, oh, that's way out of our budget. But Selleck, Tom Selleck found out about it. He called Bud back, and he said, hey, dude, I'll be up for five. So... You know, we got the premier guy to narrate it for us, but all he did is narrate. The rest of the story is told by the SEALs, and we were actually able to interview the guys that were actually these key guys in that era. So I'd have the Vietnam guys, I got the Korean guys, I got I got all these different guys that are telling us the story. You know, when who was the first guy to put scuba tanks on a, on a UDT? You know, who was the wow. first guy to do that? We had this, we had we interviewed over ninety some guys, and it was just. Like you'd sit there in the, in the interview room, just sitting there with your jaw sitting on the ground, listening to these incredible interviews of these guys, just legends, just, man, it was pretty cool. And so all UDT, all SEALs are always connected to that. You get, you go to Bud's right now and that's, you're going to see the same guy, you know, see exactly the same guy. And they know that's their route. They really do. Right. And, um, so during Vietnam, uh, you know, the, the Green Berets were commissioned, the Navy SEALs were commissioned, um, you know, fighting unconventional warfare. It wasn't the first time that uh, America was fighting unconventional warfare using those tactics, but um, it was the first time that units were created and were meant to be, uh, you know, kind of sustained. And uh, like we were yeah. going to keep that capability versus, you know, having a yeah. unit and then just disbanding it after the war, you know. Um, right. Yeah, that was. Yeah, you're right. So the the yeah. Green Berets, you know, obviously, uh, you know, direct action, that type of stuff. Um, but they they focus heavily on, uh, you know, teaching and 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 that sort of thing. Right. And, and um, I, I know SEALs have done a lot of that as well. And if I remember correctly, the SEALs had a special kind of unit with within the SEAL teams that was like I, I think they called it advisor, like an advisory role where you kind of went yeah. through some advanced training. Yep. That's true. Um we actually copied the Green Berets, you know, mo you know, the operational style which you go and you you train the indigenous people and then you operate with them. And they, we actually modeled that after the Green Beret because they they pretty much expected that right. way before we came along. Um and uh, the uniqueness thing about the SEAL was that we weren't military um, uh, brainwashed. Um, we were freer to do crazy stuff, and right. we invented really crazy stuff. 
and we weren't we weren't afraid to go into the backyard. Um, uh, there was an Admiral Zumwalt sent us into a place called the Runsat, and nobody else could go in and operate into that area. So they just sent these two SEAL platoons in there, and the, the officer just has this giant wall on the map of the Runsat that nobody has any intel on. And he just goes, he takes a dart and throws it at the ball, at the, the board, and he goes, what are the grid coordinates? We're going to go there, and we're going to set up on ambush. Wow. And that's what they started doing. And they were going in completely blind, and they ended up being just a terror in that place. And the bad guys were being a- ambushed in their, their comfort zone and in their, in their own backyard. Nothing will mess your head up more. And, you know, the legendary thing they did where they would go in and they would lay the ace of spades. The Vietnamese were scared of just you know, like Satan himself visited you if you, had, if you woke up with the, with the ace of spades on you. And these guys, this chief in the village or something like you wake up and you got the ace of spades, you know, stuck to him or something like that. And he was, oh my gosh, he's ruined after that. So. <laughs> right. Well, a, a lot of that was like psychological too, you know, like, uh, Oh my God. I know the guys yeah, like no using like face paint, you know, like green and black yeah. face paint. Yeah. Yeah. That's right. Men are green faces. That is it. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. Back those, in those days, we were still kind of trying to fight wars the way you should of being political correct, you know, with an attorney standing by and make sure you don't blow up the wrong thing or insult right. the wrong people or, I mean, I uh, read the book by Dakota Myers on how his unit is, they're in a massive, horrible um, uh, a, a battle. And they're calling in for um, artillery support and they won't do it because they're afraid they're going to blow somebody else up. And look, we're looking at the guy to blow up. Trust us, blow him up and they won't do it. And right. they end up dying. And, you know, that that right there is just, that's how, how backward we've gone compared to those days where the military was able to do what they needed to do to, you know, take out the enemy in, right. in there. So hopefully we'll have a change. I think with Trump getting in there, I think maybe the military will start going back to being uh, backed by their government, you know. Yeah, it's yeah. You know, Trump. Trump is interesting because he, you know, with Trump, you know, obviously he won the um, the nominee, and I'm a, he's the president elect. But uh, it's interesting because, the, you know, people are like, you know, people are kind of afraid, or you know, is the word they use, and not sure what he's going to do. But I think he has a, a lot of potential to do a very good job, and I think he was meeting with um, General Mattis. Yeah. yesterday or the day before or something like that so th- that's obviously a good sign when we're talking defense when we're talking military because uh, obviously that's a, a general is a very squared away and uh, I think he has the support of, of most of the military if not the entire military you know well Mathis is definitely the type you need in there because he's he was a badass over there um, in Iraq with the Marines and he, he backed his men 100% and those men totally back him i mean that was that was a great relationship with that guy so yeah he's a true warrior absolutely right. but he that we have too many political you know we we ran into that and in, uh when i was a contractor in basra is where the british were in charge of that they were the military in charge of that but they kiss ass to the uh the um the bad guys and right. they literally got driven out of basra they got driven out 
Yeah. And it was uh, American military and uh, Iraqi military went down to Basra and squared that place away. And um, unfortunately, they they gave it all up um, very conveniently. <laughs> right. But, you know, what, like you see how you're saying, you know, we kind of have an issue here with the political correctness and stuff like that. I think it's actually even worse in the UK. And um, it is. Yeah, it is. And it's just unfortunate, you know, because it it really hinders because like people don't understand, like, you know, when you're talking about fighting a war, like how, you know, never in history has there been like war with rules. You know what I mean? Like, like war is really like the breakdown of all rules and, and fucking normal thinking you know it's just like yeah it's it's as bad as it can get and you know try and get it over with you know but yeah well and and i'm glad you're bringing that up because that was absolutely what the problem was in in uh basra during that time frame is those poor soldiers they're more worried about getting prosecuted than they were about getting killed right they would have they had these rules of engagement that were impossible if somebody shot at you and he only shot two rounds you could only shoot two rounds back I mean, give me a break. Yeah, I mean, they're getting minus. their butts kicked by guys throwing hand grenades at them and Molotov cocktails burning them out of tanks. And, you know, they can't do anything because once a guy throws it, you can't shoot him. They caught them loading up mortars that they just shot on our compound because they we used to get our compound mortared almost every day and rocketed every day. And they caught them. And the hiking man says, no, did you see him shoot? No, nope. you got to let him go. It's to say stuff like that. You just are you kidding me? Right. And um, it, it you know, and I felt really sorry for the uh, British soldiers. Now, when we worked with them, they worked under our ROE. If we inserted into one of their units doing whatever we were going to do, they were under our ROE, and we would get into the mix. And we also carried extra ammo, so if they shot any round, we'd, we'd replace it. So. Because they, 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 if they get X amount of rounds, they get X amount of rounds. Right. So if they shoot something, they, there is no place they can go and go, hey, I need, you know, no. Yeah, you got to, this is it. I mean, they watch these guys like a hawk. So we would we would have plenty extra. So if, any, if they shot anything, we could refill their mag. Um, but that really wasn't necessary because they were in our ROE. They, they would be able to do what they need to do. And they were fearless at that point. You know, we... We were definitely the sheriff. We had a small unit, about 18 armored guys that would work with us. And we just kicked the crap out of them. And as long as they were operating under ROE, those guys were badass. And, um, right. So, but, um, and it was cool because the same commander that would cry, you know, guy we, you know, politically correct piece of garbage, he'd come over and yell at him because we, you guys got any guys? <laughs> And the guy's just our 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 uh, leader. And well, keep it at that. We'd walk over to the guy and say, "They're working with us. Shut the fuck up." So, <laughs> and he would just whirl off, just run out the door, run out the door, just put him back in his place, you know. So that was sweet. That was sweet. We got some really good backing then. All the, uh, you know, when I was doing the GRS work. Um, all the all the guys I work with are phenomenal. I, I got I was in the um, I got a direct hire for Ramler. We worked directly for the government, and um, 
we weren't we were actually weren't a contractor as far as we didn't go through like Blackwater or MDM or Triple Canopy or anything like that. We were strictly contracted by the government. Right. That was a sweet program because then we could go anywhere we wanted. They could send us anywhere we wanted, and, and we got X amount of dollars. And uh, we, we weren't playing a game where one time you're getting paid six hundred dollars and you come back to the same thing two months later. You only get four hundred dollars. You know, it's like they could play an stupid game. Right. So. So you you spent you spent a number of years. Um, so you you were in the navy. Uh, you went in, uh, made it through buds, uh, made it into SEAL Team One, and that was what you said, nineteen seventy two. Yeah, I got out in seventy six. Um, I was in the reserves for a few months, then I just went started playing college football. You know. And I did that for four years. I got started working in the ship repair industry, also part time. I ended up spending ten years in the ship repair industry, just fixing battleships and carriers. And that taught me about business and hard work. And it was, it was a great, you know, ten years. And then um, I got to the point where I had a young family, and I could not work the hours and put up with the crap anymore. So I ended up getting a job at Fleet Training Center, which was probably the best job I ever had. And what we did was we did a, um, we were training security teams. And this back in the days when they still had nuclear weapon systems on ships. So a guy with a shot could just take down your friggin' ship because there was just no security. It was like, duh. And um, they realized it. So this became a priority. And we had a, a Gunnar Rickman was our, um, he was like our power hub. He had a great CO that was working at. So we had the really good, um, people in the Navy that were pushing this thing and it, it got on the fast track. So we got this and it, you know, it's a funny thing. The course is actually written by a guy named Mike Bailey, who was, I served with as he was a point man. I trained with and uh, went overseas with him. and he, he's the one that wrote this, this program. He put in paintball guns on, in uh, doing force on force on a ship. And then, you know, this is eighties, 86, 85, probably when he wrote it. And, um, so, you know, nobody had done any force on force, and um, what you know, I was once once people start shooting back at you, you realize, wait a minute, these these little tactics I've been trained and don't work no more. Yeah, <laughs> this stuff does not work. And um, Fleet Training Center was a phenomenal environment to actually develop the stuff that we actually use the warfighter now. But started use, we started getting the basics there. Of, you know, when you got you know twenty guys hiding on the ship somewhere, how do you get them all? dug out and survive. And um, so we, we started doing that training. And, and at first, yeah, we were just completely, you know, I didn't know anything. I thought I would be a badass, but I wasn't. And, you know, you just regular fleet sailors, training fleet sailors and Marines to protect nuclear weapon systems on the ship. We had a week-long um, combat shooting course, which at first was run like your typical military um, range evolution. But what would happen is when we were doing the force on force drills and we were shooting it up on the ship and um, we got, we're going, wait a minute, we're not, we're not seeing this stuff come to fruition. We don't, we don't do this at a range. When we're in the range, we're not training correctly. So we changed that up big time. We changed the whole range stuff up big time. And then we started matching a range, what you do on a range to fit what you do in the gunfighter's world. And then we started getting bigger and better paintball guns with, you know, 
fully auto or fully semi yeah semi-automatic and actually fully auto paintball guns and so much for this dynamic entry crap you know this stuff started going right out the window and got down there with surefire john matthews he comes down <laughs> crazy old guy he comes down jumps down in the bottom of the ship with us and we're our gunning it out down there and we're we come we need we need good light and he's gone you know, oh, no, you got good enough light. Well, John, you, you come down and shoot it out with us down there. And he comes back out of that hole. You know, we need more light. <laughs> I agree. So he, he, you know, it was a, I call it the magic meeting between the mad scientist and the knuckle dragger. Um, we, we, we started putting together the concept of getting more and more light, more tactical light, better pressure switches, mounting them correctly. And, and then how, what techniques and how principles we use. And it got to the point where once we knew what we were doing and got the right equipment, we you could put 30 guys, 40 guys on that ship, and we would go right to them. We would just, just and you're talking about four to six man team. We would take, we would, we were literally walking death. And we we perfected that so much that when we seal platoons would come onto our ship, they would get, they would get the living crap kicked out of them. And by my fleet sailors, not not the instructors. The instructors wouldn't even go in there. When, when my fleet sailors are taking down a seal platoon and that's when you start going, maybe this stuff works. Yeah. Unfortunately for the seal teams at the time that we just weren't politically correct. And, uh, truthfully, uh, we fought them tooth and nail. The officer operators loved it. The problem is go up the food chain and now you're dealing with officers and, you're dealing with political correctness and you're dealing with, um, you know, whatever, you know, politics. So we never were able to get it into the SEAL teams. And it was sad because this, the programs they were going with were horrible. And unfortunately, the SEAL teams got stuck with these horrible tactics for a long, long time before they finally were able to get rid of some of that stuff. You know, I won't mention names. But, um, uh, you know, we we've tried to get this into the military, um, but it's very hard to get into the military because the, the operators love it because they're warriors and they're the ones that are going through the door and realize that crap that we're learning doesn't work. And we have a video proof. I can show you hours of video, but Hey, this is what the military is doing for you guys. Cause that's the first thing we do. We put them in a uh, basic grill, you know, just nothing fancy. Just, and we don't even go against them. We don't have, we don't have anybody. They go against each other. So if you guys have learned all this stuff in the military and you think you're a badass friggin' Navy SEAL or friggin' Green Beret or whatever you think you are, go for it. Let's see you. Let's see you go at it. And we just videotape it. That's all. We don't teach them nothing at first, and just watch them go. And this is what the military's done for you. After you film the videos and you're going over it and you're step by step, and you're breaking it down. And you're showing in milliseconds of time how many mistakes you're making in milliseconds of time. And I mean, it's very enlightening to those guys, and they're motivated. I mean, these guys—they don't—they don't like the idea of getting their ass kicked. And what's great about the force on force, if you don't do it right, you're going to get your ass kicked. Right. And you—you um, you don't have any other way to do it. You—you've got to do it. And you know, you're, you some guys will complain, "Oh, they're paintball guns, or that you're using simunitions or airsoft or whatever." You know what? If somebody's shooting with a paintball gun in the face, Maybe you should, what would you think would happen if it was an M4 or an AK? Right. So that's that's my thing. Is If I can sneak up in the woods, and we have a land warfare uh, process that we do too, where you, you work in the 
you know, when I, I used to have uh, in my backyard, I used to have my own little Vietnam. And when I had when I, I did get back in the reserves in 1987, so I was in the reserve from 87 through 2004. In the SEAL reserves? Yeah, yeah, SEAL reserves. And I actually got recalled to active duty in the first Gulf War. But, um, and I, you know, I just served sort of stateside. They didn't want to let any SEAL reserves go into combat because they were all worried about, oh my gosh, if we do that, then everybody's going to jump in the reserves. You know, it's like t- typical stupid crap. And, um, and <laughs> I don't even want to get into that one, but, um, but I would train the seals in my backyard and I had five acres that I could run around on, had streams and it was like Mellon Vietnam back there. And one of the first things I did was, um, test the IADs, I, you know, the, the, um, what do they call it? Um, immediate action, uh, drill or contact, right, you know, or contact front, you know, all that kind of stuff. And, you know, you go online, do your thing, you know, and, I, you know, as, as, as a sport, I was going, that stuff don't work. It, it, it don't play out like that. And so I started testing it and I started watching. I could take two guys and I could take out of eight, 10 man seal platoon just with two guys and just going off of what they were doing. The problem was, I know what you're going to do. And there is no. You're just you're just a body going to a point. You don't think about what you can do from point A to point B, or maybe going to that point is really stupid, right? Um, so you you kind of start going. If I'm going to ambush you, I'm not going to ambush you favorably for you. Right. <laughs> you know I mean? And um, so it's going to be bad for you. And so you better have an idea that what you have to do back. How do you counter it? And I started, I ran into a guy named Mike Liu, who was a former dev group guy and who was running a training there at, at SEAL team at, um, he, he did all the FPT, you know, advanced SEAL training. He was, he was just a really, he was a SEAL SEAL. Actually, he was a SEAL SEAL, freaking phenomenal guy. And, um, he saw some of the stuff I was doing. He was like, um, oh, show me, show me what you can do. I said, all right. So I got his, his instructors out there and um, they tried to pull an IAD and I go, go for it. I'm going to ambush front and you go do your friggin' IAD crap. And he, they, as, <laughs> and I was just challenging right at the beginning. And so Mike Lou and they're all walking back. Well, they, they realized right away they ain't going to do that. So what they did is I ambushed front. They attacked me like a bunch of crazy people work like a champ. They kicked my butt. I mean, I was shot up so fast. And I said, now that, that is what you should be doing. That's how you should be trained. And so he's going, okay, you got me. You got me. And so he wanted me to do uh, another thing on CTD, so close quarter battle. Um, so I said, yeah, yeah, I'll, I'll, I'll train you guys. And I put them out there. I'm making them do these drills. I had them going against a there's like, I had to have like five or six of them going after this one Navy guy of mine, who was one of my instructors at Fleet Training Center, was a really talented guy guy named Al Maestri. And he was perfect because he was totally unassuming. You'd look at it, oh, you're nothing. I'll run you know, little guy, you know, little Italian looking guy, you know. And um, he was just slaughtering these dudes. And Mike Lou goes, you know, you see something doing wrong. You, you, you can tell us. I go, all right, you asked. So, all right. I, I sat them all down. I went, boom, 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 boom. I, you know, I just hammered them. 
and this what you need to do, 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 do you know and, and mike lou is he's gone can you show me this inside a building and i go yeah and so he takes me to the trainer down in in, in imperial beach they have this underground facility there so i go down there i go okay well you got nine instructors me and al are coming after you go hide i don't even know i don't know anything about this place i've never been in it i have no clue so we just go down there and we slaughter all nine guys and most of them never even get a shot back we we just clear all the rooms and clear them right out i go that's nothing watch this turn the lights off and now we go in i actually got the video of that and we go in and we slaughter these guys and it's like one shot, boom, dead. Move the neck up. One shot, dead. One shot, dead. One shot, dead. And these guys are like, where did you learn that? I go, they go well, a little place called Fleet Training Center. And um, so he he was really behind it. And we actually put a white paper. He knew how to get our courses into the SEAL team. We actually put a white paper, white paper together. We used SEAL instructor CQB instructors, we trained them, and they were they were a disaster at first, absolute. I still have a video of that, and we showed how bad whatever you guys are doing, whatever you're doing to train Navy SEALs in the art of gunfighting, isn't working. You need to you need to take a look at this, and we we just hammered it out and. He presented it at the big training conference. He he was he knew exactly how to do it. He spent 20 minutes going over. He goes, hey, I've, I've, I was, I spent 15 years in Dev Group. I learned more in three days working with this guy than I did in 15 years at Dev Group. This training needs to be put into the SEAL team. And you'd think that he was trying to get Hillary Clinton elected because <laughs> you, you cannot. We were like dumped out of it. And then I threw up the video. And I've gotten stop action. This is a goofball. <laughs> this is wrong. That's wrong. This is wrong. All this stuff is stupid. Why, why do you want our guys in combat doing that? You know, and you would think that the two of us were traitors to the union. I mean, we, we couldn't believe it. And it was all because of we weren't politically in the, the right loop. And they had a big like party afterwards which I didn't go to. But Mike Lou said, dude, he couldn't even go there for a few minutes because he, he, they just roasted. And unfortunately, we never were able to get the program into the Navy. So, um, yeah, it, it's, it's frustrating because what we saw when I would train a SEAL platoon, when we'd get them off the friggin' stupid, political, correct, dumbass, stupid training that they're doing. And I'm talking specifically gunfighting. The SEALs have other things they can do. Their sniping program is stellar. They do so many other great things. So understand I'm not cutting down anything. I'm focusing on my expertise is just gunfighting. Um, um, but, you know, I think that they are gunfighters. I think that's something they should be able to do. <laughs> I mean, I think so. I may be wrong, but... Um, uh, this this should they should be as good at gunfighting as anybody in the world, in my opinion. But we would find out when you train a platoon and get them off that crap, you would see stuff. They'd come up with their own tactics and stuff that were devastating. I mean, just monstrous. And you were like, wow, this is badass. I mean, you're taking a platoon. We would we we had a building downtown, just four stories, um, 
and we would have eight bad guys. I had all these role players, and they were just a total mix of dudes. Some of them had no clue on what they were doing. One was the manager of the thing. He was a little skinny guy, just loved Navy SEALs. He just like, see you, you know. And uh, he just wanted to be a bad guy. He didn't care. He was cool, and he would he would open the building up for us all the time. So he, he as far as we concerned, we did everything we could for that guy. Man. Yeah, you can be a bad guy. You can have two guns. We don't care, you know. And uh, so we 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 start them out. We'd have like eight guys, bad guys on each floor, and it would take them like. 45 minutes, 50 minutes, and they just died all the time, and they 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 weren't effective. It was like, there's got to be a better way. So we started teaching them, and we would say, okay, you got a 16 map platoon, y'all go hide. Four of us were coming after you, and we'd freaking slaughter them. We'd run right through them, and they're like, okay, you got our you got our interest. The first thing you need to do is get rid of that crap you're doing. So, and that was usually um, the enlisted men were always that was not a problem. Usually the problem you run into is the officers because they, there's more pressure on them to do things the, the, you know, the company way, let's put it that way. Where the enlisted guy is going, I'm trying to survive out here, dude. You know, I don't want to, I don't need to, I don't need to, this other crap. I've been doing this for a long, lot longer than you, sir. And I don't need to sit here and go, this is a better way. So you've only done one platoon. This is your first platoon, sir. So we're doing it this way. So. One guy flat told him, sir, I refuse to ever do that crap again. <laughs> <laughs> and we're like, all right, we got a little, little you know, coup going here. And we finally told the one officer, I said, look, you go be the point man. You run in that room. You do what you're doing. And he walks in. He goes in. And we videotape it. And this poor guy, he just gets his butt handed to him. We only had one bad guy in there. It wasn't like we were trying to set this guy up. We just had one bad guy in there, and he just gets his butt lit up. And you watch him with his gun, what he does with his gun, and you watch just, dude, is that is that your life right there, sir? And that's what you expect your point man to continue to do? And he's gone, all right, you got me. Now, that guy, he was a tactical whiz-bang. Once he figured this stuff out, he was a badass. He's the one that um, we were, there was this one hallway of death where it was very wide, high wide hallway and there's a, all these different places you get sh- shot at from down at the end of the hallway. And these guys were used to doing their stupid stuff with really stupid stuff. And they're they just getting totally slaughtered. And he finally said, all right, guys, fuck this. I want you on my right shoulder. You're going to be on my left shoulder. I want four guy Y. We're going down this friggin' hallway. Anything that shoots is going to get murdered. And I want you guys entering behind us. You're going to clear the room behind us. And he explains exactly explained perfectly how to do it and our i got the bad guys I, i'm on the other end of this with a video camera and i'm watching this one bad guy that's been doing nothing but just dust these guys and he thinks it's the funniest thing in the world killing <laughs> a bunch of navy seals he's he's some civilian kid he's a little guy and you see that those four guys come down that hallway totally determined and this guy he see him pop out and you see him get hit he must got hit 10 times and he falls back at my feet and I think I even took a round or two in the legs, and I'm like, that's badass. And he's going, holy crap, like, that was badass. So, you know, uh, the, I would much rather see that. I would rather, I don't like to actually teach tactics. What I do is get you in drills. We do drills, and we teach principles. The tactic is up to you. You know, that team of guys has much more knowledge in their heads than I do. And 
you know, that was one of the gifts of the regular SEAL films that I first got into was their ability to, as a platoon guy, come up with, with a, a way that they were going to take down a target. So, you know, once you start hammering these guys in, you got you got to stay in this line. you got to stay down these. you got to have these political correct ways. you got to have these rules. You, you, you're taking a Ferrari and you're putting on a, on a go-kart track. That's what you're doing. That's what the teams have done for a long, long time. And and uh, and this was what in the eighties or early nineties. Yeah, yeah. And yeah. and and obviously since then, you know, with so much fighting and war going on, they've like mastered these these type of gunfighting tactics. No, they have not. Hmm, really? Yep. They're only now just starting to do what we call Jehagador. You know, they're only now doing limited penetration. We were teaching that twenty years ago. We couldn't get any of that in. They, they, they're just now starting to even maybe look at it. We might, you know, revisit the SEAL teams. I don't know, but um, it, it's you're 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 walking into a totally guarded, um, politically correct environment. There, I don't think you're going to get change it until um, I don't know. I'm I, a regime change right now. I think is going to help the military out big time. Is you're not going to have to play kiss ass as much. I think. I think if you're going to fight a war, you're going to fight a war. So the officers that are real, they won't have that pressure on them to to. Um, they can be the officers they really want to be. You know, they're the ones that get all the heat. And listen, can you know we can bitch and moan and go and complain, but the officers are the ones that eventually they're they're removed. Their their career is stunted. They they'll never be a, a captain. Or, you know they. They they have a if they screw up or they aren't accepted, their career is short. And that's one of the things I saw when I I saw the the warrior class officers that we had in SEAL Team One, which I thought were some of the best officers I was ever around. But after the war was over, I saw the the political games that came against these guys, and I went, wow, wow. And so many of them just got out. They just some of the best officers we had just got out because they couldn't deal with the the hacks that were in charge and charge of their careers. And they'd, you know, if you're an officer and you hadn't done anything, you had no medals, which is really bad. I mean, <laughs> you're, you're being, you're, the officers inspecting this crew of um, legendary warriors with medals hanging, you know, all these combat medals hanging off their chest. And this officer's got like the National Defense Medal, you know, <laughs> A bunch of little admin medals, and this guy's gonna and and um, this guy's inspecting these guys, right? And uh, it it was pretty sad. We had some. I was pretty amazed at the officers that we had. Some of the officers that we had in charge of the of the seals in that, especially at that time, um, that were there. And you know, I don't want to mention any names, but compared to uh, the great war veterans that I was able to be around, I man. I'll tell you what, it, it, it was such a, that's why I got out. I just couldn't stand the hypocrisy or the, the, the lunacy of it. You know, I think it was, you're trying to play football. You want the best football player on the team, you know, right. you, you know, and if the, if the coach is getting paid off, so he's putting other players on the field, you know, fans are going to be really pissed, you know, and you're not putting your all-star, but, and that's the way the military works. They, they take these, Goofballs and advance them. Right. 
it's a sad thing. Yeah. So, so after, you know, after, um, you know, you were doing the fleet training and you were in the uh, reserve SEAL teams, you then went on to work as a contractor, like full time. Yeah, I got, um, in 2002, um, a guy named Gary Jackson contacted me. I'd actually put a force on force program in the SEAL team three. And, um, Gary saw it and he, he gave me a $50,000 budget. Him and Kirby Harrell, we put a great little program together for him at SEAL Team 3 to try to mix up, to, to blend with us what we were doing at Fleet Training Center. And we said, hey, you got the ship. You can use it anytime you want. You know, go for it. And when we had the booing downtown, go for it. You know, I got my backyard, go for it. You know, um, the, so he called me up and said, hey, man, get your butt to Afghanistan. You know, I go, I'm there. So the day I got my, you know, within one week, I had every, I had my gear, I had my passport, I had everything I needed to go, I had my ticket. And that morning before I'm supposed to go, he calls me up and goes, Dave, got some bad news for you, buddy. Friggin' one of the guys, contractors we brought over here, of course, was a SEAL team guy. <laughs> Had about two or three felonies on his record, and they wiped out our ability to bring him over on um, interim secret clearances. So nobody can come over without a secret clearance. And I go, and if you got out of the military, that didn't count. They wouldn't take your secret clearance out of the military. I already had a secret clearance as a contractor with uh, when I went in the ship repair industry. That didn't matter. Everything you start over. Like okay, great. So that took months and months before I finally got that. But I got that in two thousand. I went over to Afghanistan, two trips in 2003, working as a contractor. And then um, in 2004, I moved to the GRS side. And then I was deployed 16 times in Iraq and usually in the Basra area. But and uh, that was that was a great experience working those 16 trips with the GRS. Uh, That was phenomenal. Um, just did just, just tons and tons of operations. Um, and, uh, working Basra was, was probably one of the best because our, you know, like I know you've seen the movie, um, the movie, uh, 13 hours yeah. where the chief of base, the chief of base was kind of a goofball. I never saw that. The chief of base that I worked with were stellar and backed us a thousand percent. So. Um, I had nothing but high regards for those guys and all the DRS. I, it was really, I was working with these or these are the best guys in the world to work with, I thought. And, you know, we worked close with the British and we worked with the British SAS and we had our own little team that we were doing. Uh, we had quite a crew there and it was, I, those are some of the funnest operations I ever did. You know, I can't describe them too much, but they were pretty, very, um, it, you, every day was, oh my God, what are we going to do today? What crazy ass thing are we going to do today? And you, nothing was the same. Nothing was the same. So that, that was some really good time there. And then, um, and then I did, uh, seven trips to like Lebanon and that was, that was some good work there. Um, and of course, things were settling down in uh, in Iraq. They were starting to get politically correct, and it, it was just you know rules engagement were getting all confused. And it's like okay, and now we're more worried about getting prosecuted than 
prosecuting the war. You know, so I um, 2011, yeah, well, yeah, in 2006, I definitely got in a major gun battle. And actually, in 2006, I actually was I was able to change the paradigm that the contracting system was was under, which was um, was happening is government was making the contractors bid on these contracts. First, it was like for two years, then they cut it down to one year, and they started cutting down to six months. And what's happening is the con- contractors are bidding on this stuff, and they're they're cutting down our wages. Hmm. And I'm like, when we first started going to Iraq, we're on okay, yeah, we're getting like you know six, seven hundred dollars a day, and then they start jumping down to five hundred a day, and now they're talking about take, taking it down to four, four fifty a day. And I'm like, this is nuts. And in 2006, we got in a major gun battle. Um, Friggin' took a round in the head with in my helmet, and then had to rescue three guys that were trapped in a vehicle. They were surrounded by about 180 or so, 120 to 200, something like that. If we had numbers, weird. but um, it was a lot. And a minimum of about 200 Iraqis were sitting there in that area, and they were just pounding these guys. And we had to get them out, and um, we just got in this major gun battle, but we got our guys out. And, um, the, after we got done with that, we come back and then two days later, Blackwater lost the contract to, uh, MVM. And none of us wanted to work for MVM. We were all Blackwater. That's our company. You know, it's, that's my football team. You know what I mean? And the chief of base, she goes, well, you guys are just going to quit Blackwater and go work for MVM. And I look and I go, what are you kidding me? What do you think we are? A freaking garbage company? You can just you know, call up and change garbage disposal companies or something like that. I go, here's what's going to happen. You're going to lose all your talent in two weeks. All your talent, all your experience is gone. And MVM is going to have these rookies come in here and they're going to know nothing. And the threat's going up. And I go, you've got to think about this for a second. Who it works in any industry where your wages go in reverse. We used to be making X amount and now we're making this amount. For 400, you want me to come back here when last year more contractors were killed in Iraq than at any other time during the war? What's, what planet are you on? And she's like, her face went just, you can see the blood just right, right out of her face. And she, uh, she, she got it. She got it. Now that, that woman was a badass and she, she was the key to calling and going, change it now and get the GRS head here now and we're going to fix this. This guy's right. Because I was a contractor working in the ship repair industry. I understand how businesses work. I understand why people motivate and go down and work for them eight, ten hours a day. It's not, you can't play this political crap crap when you're, you're in a war. And right. um, people still, you know, value their time spent away from home and the value of their, their life is on the line. So, um, and so some stupid contracting agent in the agency can, you know, hey, I'll look at all the money I saved. You know, screw you, idiot. So they came out there and we, we hashed it out. And what came away from that is they determined this is what a contractor that does this GRS work, this is what they make. Nothing else, nothing less. Whatever you contractors bid, fine. And then they also said, you know, screw all the contractors. Let's just direct hire these guys. 
let's go find the talented guys, the top guys in all the areas. We'll just hire those guys directly. We won't, we won't deal with contractors anymore. And we're like, yeah, I'm, all, I'm about that. Because now I can go to Amman, Jordan. You know, I can go, you know, fly to you know, Jordan, go to Uzbekistan, go wherever they want to send me, you know, and I don't have to do any, you know, there's no contracts. It's just we go wherever they want us to go. And we're all a bunch of psychos. We want to go where the action is. So, you know, wherever the action is and they want to send us, we're, you know, just like the guys in Benghazi, those that typical GRS guys, send us where the, where the action is, you know. So um, those guys wanted to be there and they were the right guys to put there for that time. And um, the, those, those were just like any typical GRS group, you know. The ones that I fought with in Iraq in that battle where we were outnumbered, you know, 20, 30 to one, we won that one. And we won that handily against the bad guys. So, you know, and even after getting shot in the head, man, I, <laughs> I was able to, you know, present them with a lot of, you know, lead poisoning <laughs> and get, get my team out of there. But um, uh, that team, we are the, the driver, um, I, I didn't even know his name because I'd only been there a week and he was a new guy. So I didn't know him from Adam. Um, so, you know, if the GRS kind of just throws guys together, but that background they have, they, they still bond together. It's like, you're, you're still putting the same piece together. You know, even though they may not know each other, they still will fight for each other the same way. And the, the problem you have for GRS, and we know this, is that we're always going to be totally outnumbered, totally outgunned. And our, our mission is way out of control when things go bad. And so we know that we're going to be fighting impossible odds. And that's what makes us unique in that we know it. So we, don't, we got nothing to lose. So when, when things do go bad, we already know, hey, it's going to be out of control. And it's okay. Got nothing to lose. And that's, you know, you saw that in Benghazi. Saw the same thing in um, Basra when we had our crazy, ridiculous gun battle. Nobody should have survived that. I mean, that was, that was, that was non-survivable, but somehow we were able to, you know, battle our way out of that one. So, so now after, um, you know, after going through that and, and doing your rotations uh, during the, the GWAT, now you are running courses and training, uh, with right. the War, Warfighter Academy? Yeah. Yeah. I'm, I'm 64. So I was starting to get too old for this stuff. <laughs> bottom line and getting shot in the head is not really helpful either. And you know, when you only have a couple of brain cells working, that's not helpful to the, you know, the brain housing group. So started going, you know, maybe, maybe I need to move on and get out of this stuff. You know, maybe I should grow up someday. So we, you know, um, you know, well, fortunately, while I was overseas, I was always running the training, live fire training out there at the ranges and doing all in the CTB. Everybody would adapt to my training out there because they, they weren't going to go with the, the, uh, the training that was required of them. Let's put it that way. Politically correct training. And, uh, so we, we were able to, and that, that paid off big time in Basra because that, that thing paid off dearly. And, um, we, we had, done the right things prior to that battle that prepared us to fight our way out of that thing. I, I will say that. And everybody that was there was only, a, there was only six of us and we were surrounded 
by well over 200 Iraqis. And we're talking 55 to 25 to 30 yards. This isn't, you know, this is right on top of you. And um, every one of those guys did something that saved everybody's butt. Every one of those guys. So, I mean, you can go down it, you can put it. And we did this as soon as it was over. We sat down with a big piece of paper and we, because I got shot in the head, I couldn't remember nothing. <laughs> I go, okay, guys, you got to tell me what happened. <laughs> so we like drew it out. And I'm an artist, so I drew it out real good, you know. And, okay, what did you see? What did you see? What did you see? What happened here? Da, da, you know, and we, you know, we, you know, you could see that, wow, each one of those guys did something that basically saved our ass. It really was quite amazing. Yeah, that's awesome. So, and and so now, uh, if if anybody is interested in uh, like checking out anything regarding the Warfighter Academy, is there a place they can go to for that, like online or something? Yeah, yeah, we have a website up. Is that working now? Is that up and running? Yeah, that's up and running. Yeah, and we we teach. We have a basic. We I figured it out over the years of actually how to take somebody from not knowing anything, like a housewife, and you know, or you know, Joe Farmer and his 16-year-old son just want to learn how to protect their house. But we have a we have we can teach you the basics, how to go from point A to point B, and then we can also take you if you want to start going in the law enforcement route or the military route. What how we take you and push you in those directions? And it's it's a it's a piece by piece deal. We've really I've really figured it out over the years exactly how to to get each one of the skill sets so you can see it. And you're videotaping all the time. That's the, one of the big things we do. We don't believe in telling anybody anything. You need to see yourself on tape because you'll find out most people are the most they're they're their worst critic. Yeah. more, you know. So you just let them go, and and we don't hammer anybody. We don't if we hammer them as far as physically, we get shot up a lot, but um, we don't hammer them in a classroom. You know, if anything, most of us are laughing our ass off at some of the stuff you see on tape, which is priceless. But, you know, you, you, you go, okay, I see it. Okay, I got to do that next time. You know, and then you run the drill and you keep running the drills over and over again. It starts, okay, now it's, it's, it's starting to happen. It starts to work. And, and then you, you, you start playing. You start throwing all the variables against them, you know, and then they start adapting. And they're, they're, well, the biggest thing you're doing is you're, you're working on the brain itself. We're trying to make the brain, but so it's a subconscious action. <clears throat> the brain is so fast. And if it's a subconscious action, you don't think twice about it. And I know that that helped me when I was in the, the battle and, and overseas. There was, I, it was subconscious to me. That whole thing was like, I wasn't even, I wasn't even rattled. Yeah, you shot my head. Oh, well, we're still going at it, but I had no cover. And I... <laughs> I was in the worst possible tactical position I could be. I'm standing on the medium strip in the middle of the freaking street with one street light pointing like right in my face almost. So I have the worst lighting, no cover, and oh well, let's go. Let's go to town. And you know, my whole thing was I knew I was going to die. It wasn't even a question. I knew that when I before I even opened that door to get out. Once, once, once we had found our car that was stricken and it was all shot up it was literally shot to smoking pieces and i just thought oh, three guys in there were all shot up and i just you know it's, that was a horrible feeling um that to see that you're just like oh my god and i look out the window and i see all these dudes and so 
I go, well, this is it. I'm, this is where I die right here. But once you make that, you know, okay, game over. Let's, let's go to, like when you jump your first parachute jump, you're scared to death until you jump out the, off the ramp. And after you jump, jump off the ramp, you're back into what you're supposed to do. You're not scared anymore. Yeah. <clears throat> so basically that's what it was. And, um, the, um, I just didn't even think twice about it. I knew I was going to die. I'm, but here's what's going to happen. I'm going to shoot as many of you until you stop. So that, that's your job. And they had their first shot. They did, they did have their first shot. <laughs> they had their chance. And it um, um, didn't work out. Kind of, it was a thing called Murphy's Law. And I tell you what, it's, that is a true, anything that can go wrong will go wrong. And up to that point, everything that could go wrong for us went wrong everything up until that point and after that murphy changed teams and everything that could go wrong went wrong for them and so we, we got some reprieve on that <laughs> nice awesome so it was, it was great talking to you man i appreciate you uh, yeah. coming on here and then sharing some of your experiences i know it's uh you had a unique career um you know in, in terms of the length of it and and uh, all of your experiences uh, and I, I know my audience is going to really appreciate hearing it from you. Um, so, you know, once again, thank you for taking the time to come on. I really appreciate you doing this. Um, uh, no problem. Yeah. And, and yep. uh, what I'll do is when I share the post on social media and, and when I have it up on my website, I'll link, I'll have links set up to direct people to the Warfighters uh, website page and all that stuff. Yeah. Yeah. Cause we're, we're more than willing to help you, you know, help people learn this stuff and we've got it dialed in. We know what we're doing. All right, cool, man. So, again, thank you for everything you've done, and uh, thank you for coming on. All right. All right. Thank you. appreciate it. So, so that was an interesting conversation. Um, it was good to listen to, actually. And it's always, I always think that listening to people that have, like, if we all had the same opinion of things, it would be boring. And yeah. it's, it's always good to listen to what I call an informed opinion. And regardless of where you get your experience from you know if you have ex extensive experience the way that he does then you know i i always think you've got to respect people's and i you know again it was extremely interesting to listen to and not everyone's going to agree with all the things that were said but i quite right. I, I like when people throw shit out there because it's you know not everyone's not everyone's got the balls to do that you know most people they they go along the party line but right. when you get to 65 years of age you can you can say what you like can you and you've You've been on the earth long enough to yeah. I think to have like those, a, yeah. And like why a, not? You you don't give a fuck, but in like a calm yeah. way, you know, like, know. like like he just smiles and he's like, yeah, I don't give a fuck. I'm just gonna say, yeah. This. And I, you know, he could have. I think regardless of what he said, it, you, when you get to that age, I quite like to listen to that because it's it's quite refreshing because we can all be um, accused of being sometimes a little, little uptight or we're all sort of still drunk on the things that we um, like cherish most, but sometimes you do have to look at things um, from, in a different way. And do you know what I think that, f from his perspective, that um, way only comes with age. So right. like us in our sort of, I, I'm not even going to say fresh face, let's say 30s slash 40s, you, your, our opinions are still going to be, you know, very different to what someone of 65 is. Because if you've been on the, the earth longer, and you and you know, looking at his experience, I mean, geez, he's he's been around a bit, hasn't he? And in different in different sorts of jobs, which um, again, and working with lots of different um, 
like standards of warrior and and that's that's the opinions that he comes up with which makes it really interesting to me right and, and i i think it'll be interesting to see how people respond to it um specifically you know seals and, yeah. and guys who serve in those type of soft units and and you know yeah. kind of hear a perspective from a you know from an older guy from an older generation who who and it's really crazy because you know by the time that he was contracting during the GWAT he must have been you know north of 50 yeah like still running around running and gunning you know i mean i don't think you see see that too often you know no and usually um especially in the in the places that we're operating you you still get i've done a lot of contracting and you get some some guys and god if you're even looking at the places like iraq libya you know all those places you'd get contractors that were extremely capable still doing some ex- extremely dangerous stuff you know and then the you wouldn't you wouldn't get away with keeping your life if you weren't capable in some of those um situations and i know especially on the sort of spe- the special ops contracting um side that right. they had their specific contracts were i mean i would never compare to the 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 sort of military tasks but i'm pretty sure that there were tasks going on that were um of the same ilk yeah yeah so I mean I may even start whispering because that's probably all secret stuff. <laughs> <laughs> but you know what I'm saying, yeah. And that will, you know, and his his chat will piss some people off. I mean, God, it, it's I can. It's easy for me to to sit and listen because it's not when it's not about um, things that you hold dear to you. You it's you can listen and you can take on board someone's opinion. But clearly, if if someone had been sat there saying, "Oh, combat medics are shit," I probably would have. You'd you'd lose it. <laughs> that's just. <laughs> But yeah, and do you know what? I wonder if they use the word interesting as much as we just did, John. <laughs> um, yeah, so, you know, it, overall it's cool, man. And, and you know, I'm, I'm glad that he came on and was able to share some of his experiences. Um, so they run, Dave is like the lead instructor at a company that is uh, training like gunfighting and, and other kind of tactical uh, situations out in, uh, out in the West Coast in San Diego. Uh, the name of the company is the Warfighter Academy. Um, you can check them out. They have a website. It's www.thewarfighteracademy.com. Oh, I'm sorry. It's warfighteracademy.com, not thewarfighteracademy.com. And on there, you know, they have contact information. They have their social media handles. Anything uh, that you may need, there's articles, you know, that they've had from written about them from uh, major publications in the United States. And, uh yeah, and you can just keep up with them up there. Um, Chantel Taylor wrote a very good book. Uh, it's available on Amazon.com. Thanks, John. No problem. <laughs> <laughs> it's called uh, Battle One, the, the Memoirs of a Combat Medic in Afghanistan. Check it out. Um, my website is globalrecon.net. My Instagram account is IG Recon. The second one is Black Ops Matter. My Twitter is IG Recon. I'm on LinkedIn, just search Global Recon. Chantel's um, Facebook account is Battle Worn, and her Instagram account is Mission underscore Critical. Check her out there. Uh, as always, um, you know, I, I'd like you to uh, subscribe, download, share the episodes with your friends and family, and that way it'll help keep us at the top of the government and national categories on iTunes, and that way we'll be able to continue to bring you uh, good content. So 
Thanksgiving's right around the corner. Everybody have a safe, happy holidays. I hope you guys enjoy it. For everyone who's overseas serving, you know, we think about you all the time. And uh, we'll see you guys in a couple of days with another episode. Peace. Korea has not been the only battleground since the end of the Second World War. Men have fought and died in Malaya, in Greece, in the Philippines, in Algeria, and Cuba, and Cyprus, and almost continuously on the Indo-Chinese Peninsula. No nuclear weapons have been fired. No massive nuclear retaliation has been considered appropriate. This is another type of warfare. New in its intensity, ancient in its origin, war by guerrillas, subversives, insurgents, assassins, war by ambush instead of by combat, by infiltration instead of aggression, seeking victory by eroding and exhausting the enemy instead of engaging him. It is a form of warfare uniquely adapted to what has been strangely called wars of liberation. To undermine the efforts of new and poor countries to maintain the freedom that they have finally achieved. It preys on economic unrest and ethnic conflicts. It requires in those situations where we must counter it. And these are the kinds of challenges that will be before us in the next decade if freedom is to be saved, a whole new kind of strategy, a wholly different kind of force, and therefore a new and wholly different kind of military training.